Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at SchoolStatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 120, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. Why is Texas creating a do-not-hire registry for school districts? And is chocolate milk about to be a thing of the past for New York City schools? Stay with us. Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, the trick to combating fake news, how to teach your students and colleagues about news literacy. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by the school principal you don't want to go head-to-head with in golf, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing? I am pretty good today. We are now pushing into October. And right. This is um, We did an interview in our first year of doing Class Dismissed with an, an author um, named Roxana Eldon. And Roxana Eldon would um, talk about the disillusionment phase, which normally happens for teachers like kind of in late October. Like, Do you ever see this happen with teachers where they kind of – I think it's before then. Do you? Yeah. Yeah. I so think early October because you're coming in August we start and it's the early, rush. Yeah. yeah. That's why. Yeah. yeah. So that's appropriate for schools that start after Labor Day. But like right now we're sitting on week eight. Mm-hmm. It's happening. You start to feel like teachers. So what do you do as a leader? Like to You've got to find a way to corral them. You got to pump them up. You got to leave happies in their mailboxes. You got to give them a jeans day. You, um, you know, will you just your, your meetings can't be boring. I mean, you've got to have a lot of fun and really one on one conversations. Just checking on people. Hey, how's it going? What can I do to help you? I, I didn't realize the value of a jeans day. It's, it's listen deal, to me. Right? It's worth more than money. <laughs> I spent time buying gifts and collecting, you know, items from, you know, around town who can help me by donating, you know, gifts to celebrate teachers. But let me tell you, they want a jeans day. And for some reason, it just makes them feel so much more relaxed, although they don't have to wear a suit and tie. Right. But they love the spirit shirts. It allows them to just, you know, embrace so that it's the end of the week. Jeans and a spirit shirt. Yes. Yeah. We don't just do, you know, jeans and tennis yeah. shoes or whatnot, but we definitely wear school colors mm-hmm. or a district shirt, show our spirit and our support, and then they get to wear them with jeans. Things, things are so much more relaxed than they were 20 years ago, dress-wise, though. So Absolutely. I feel like it's, it's totally fine now. I, never, like, I was never able to wear jeans in my early years as a teacher. We couldn't wear open-toe sandals. We couldn't wear a lot of things. Yeah. I mean, the, the church I go to now, the pastor's in jeans on stage, and I wear mm-hmm. jeans, and I'm 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 okay with it. You know, well, I like, guess that's a little kind of bit different because you know, when going to church, it's come as you are. Jesus will accept you as you are, right? And so you don't have to have a two hundred dollars suit to be able to come and. That's a good point. So that's yeah. a little bit different, but as professionals, we need to, yeah. you know, set a certain tone and message for the children we serve. So what else is going on in the teachers lounge this week? Well, you know, we we see around the country uh, just something that just keeps reoccurring. And that's teachers being involved in sexual misconduct. Mm -hmm. And so in Texas right now, they are pushing something very interesting. Um, They want to develop sort of a database with teachers who have been identified or proven guilty to have been involved with sexual misconduct um, to help out others, neighboring school districts and people who are looking to fill all of these open slots across the nation. This is interesting because I know like a lot of 
people when they get that call saying, you know, hey, so-and-so used to work for you. What can you tell me about them? And you, as a, a supervisor, have to be careful with what you say because, you know, there's there's rules and stuff in place. Like the rule that Absolutely. I had where I was, they were basically like, just tell them when they work there. That was it. And it's very similar um, in, in my position as well. We can share whether they, you know, reported to work regularly. Um, do they have good relationships with parents and their coworkers? But if they wanted to get into something deeper, we always have to refer them to the personnel department at the district office. Okay. So that's that's pretty safe. So it sounds like this is this is a list. So if maybe someone was accused of some sort of sexual? Well, here's the issue. If a teacher is accused of sexual misconduct, um, just the fact that it's being discussed, that the accusation has been made, now you've got rumors going all over the school. It may be disheartening in the community. Oftentimes, there's something that just doesn't sit right with a superintendent or a principal. And just to make everything, you know, a little bit easier, they'll give that teacher an opportunity to resign. And so when they resign, all is swept under the rug, it goes away, no one else is talking about it, but you never really got to the bottom of it. And so that teacher can just then go and apply to another school district. However, if a teacher is accused of sexual misconduct, and there's a lot of evidence around that, um, the police are involved, there's a deep investigation, you know, nine times out of 10, you've seen this, it hits the news, and this is real. And so that person may actually be charged and arrested. And that in itself is um, a reason you can let someone out of their contract. We watched when as a news director, I would see um, somebody be charged criminally with sexual misconduct. And we would quickly go and we'd see, you know, where they worked and, and where they worked before. And there was a time where somebody had worked at one district and then they moved to a neighboring district and then they got picked up at that other you start district. seeing a pattern. Yeah, you start seeing a pattern. Or one time even I think the crime may have taken place at the older district and then they were just now getting the charges pressed and they'd already moved to the other. So it's kind of like the question as a normal person who's not in the school district was, well, why did, why did District A let District B hire that person? Well, there's a couple of ways to look at that. I mean, one, legally, you can't just send out you know, what you've heard or what's been presented to you right. and there are no facts to support it, remember? Mm-hmm. Um, innocent until proven guilty. The other part about it is what questions did that other school district ask? You get a lot of times, hey, I just want to verify so-and-so worked for you. How many years? Um, what grade levels did they teach? What subject areas? Um, were they good at writing tests? Did they work well with their teammates? Did they come to work on time? All right, well, thank you so much and have a great day. They never ask the important questions. Mm-hmm. Would you hire this person back? Right. Because that's a key question. And of course, you want to be careful with saying no. But our go to response is they're welcome to apply again. Mm -hmm. And then crickets. Right. Hopefully they pick up on that. But if they don't, it's up to them to really probe a little bit further. Right. So. So, okay. So make sure I'm understanding this right. Is the list designed so districts can know, though, or it's only... It's so districts can know if a teacher, you know, was arrested or if charges were pressed in regard to sexual misconduct. And how is that different from like a normal background check? Well, really, it should pop up on the background check when something like that occurs. Um, But I think the problem with that is if you have an appropriate disposition, say the charges were dropped, say nothing ever happened, and the disposition on your record says clear... But the district really knows, you know, sometimes even though you know a person is guilty of something, if you don't have the appropriate evidence to really stick it to them, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Then you can't move forward with it, but you know it's not right. So I think you have to look at that both ways. You also have to just be very careful to do, um, you know, 
deep background checks, not just the fingerprint, but really make those phone calls and really track. If you look at someone's resume and they've popped from school to school to school, there's an issue there. And it may not be because of sexual misconduct. It could be something as small as classroom management. There is a reason, though, while they're moving around so much, if they are not in the military or if they're not married to someone with a job that causes the family to move. So is this this is in Texas? This is in Texas. Okay. Is this a good thing in your opinion? Um, yes and no. What's great about it is we need something like that because these people are working with America's children. Right. Um, so it's, it's a safety issue. Number one, if nothing else. But my question is what about surrounding States? What -hmm. about those neighboring, you know, school districts? If you are in the Texas, if you are under the Texas department of education, then under that agency, you get that protection with this new procedure that they have. But what if you step outside of the state? Yeah, a lot of people go over to Oklahoma or vice versa around Texas. Correct. Yeah, that's a good point. I guess it would take or a federal Or they can pop over list. to Louisiana. Right. Right. Okay. So that's interesting, though. So Texas seems to be you know, kind of on the leading edge of well, and I think it's like I think this. it's pretty good because what you've seen is an increase in the allegations or accusations over the last few years. Mm-hmm. Um, significantly um, in Texas, actually, the article talked about going from um, 816 just about six years ago to almost 1,500 um, cases this year where certified educators were accused of sexual misconduct. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's happening more or people are speaking up more? I think in the times that we're living in and the way technology and social media is set up, right. there's nothing you can keep a secret. Um, I suspect that this has been going on a long time, but um, now it's just you, so much about your, your footprint can be tracked. Right. Well, remember we had, um, I know you know Dr. Ben Burnett. We yes. had him on the show a few episodes back. He teaches a um, educational law mm-hmm. class. Mm-hmm. And I asked him, I was like, what's the number one thing you try to pound into your students' heads who are about to be educators in terms of, you know, to watch out for this pitfall? He said, don't text students. Like, Period. That, that's number one. He's like, every district should have a policy to where you, you can't even. Not even for athletics. You communicate with the parent and you require the parent to text yeah. the student. Yeah. But I, I'm sure, I, I imagine that's happening less, but so many times I've heard it often starts there. Well, the only good thing about it is they are now requiring the school districts in Texas to check this registry along with all the other measures in place before hiring. Okay. Well, that's so good. hopefully other states will pick up on that. Yeah. Well, um, I've got one and I want your opinion on it because uh, this is one of those things where some people might think it's on track and some people might think it's ridiculous. This is out of um, New York City. Apparently, New York City is on track to ban chocolate milk. It hasn't happened yet. What? Yeah. So they don't want chocolate milk because it has too much sugar in it. Are they going to ban sodas too? Well, and that's that's a fair question. And, and I'm assuming that not just sodas, but like apple juice, right? Like apple right. juice has a ton of sugar in it. And well, how about the energy drinks? You would think that as well. But it says, according to the health department, eight ounces of um, a local public school's chocolate skim milk has 120 calories and 20 grams of sugar, eight grams of which are added sugar. Um, and skim milk version of that would be 90 calories and 12 grams of sugar. So basically, it's just eight extra grams of sugar. Um, so the city is looks like they're removing this direction, and they've gotten all sorts of pushback from... So they don't want to serve chocolate milk, whether it's skim or not. Apparently not. Did anybody track how much vitamin D a child can get? And so that is the pushback is exactly the stuff that you're saying. Like there's a lot of good nutrients in milk. You're able to get a child to drink milk because they like the chocolate flavor. And and apparently more than 50% of the students in the district select the chocolate milk over the white milk. Well, here we go. Not doing what's best for kids, but, but inserting our own personal opinions 
and a decision that could affect hundreds or thousands of children. Right. And and it's a shame because, you know, I'm, I was the white milk guy. Like that's, I grabbed it. I don't know why. I just never really. I like strawberry. I like strawberry. That is good. Um, I really bet there's a lot of sugar in the strawberry. Probably so. They're, they're, I didn't get into the chocolate until I was older. But I mean, I would say the majority of my friends would always go to the chocolate milk. Yes. And it's it's interesting to see that this might not even be an option. Um, and, and the other argument against you know, permitting this from happening um, was the fact that they were concerned about the dairy farmers. They're just there's a lot of uncertainty around agriculture in general, and right. they're, they're concerned. I mean, New York City is a major. It's going to take a big hit. Yeah, and and so I think um, there was saying, you know, watch out for them. I think the kids should be, you know, first on the radar, but. But that is a valid point as well. well. Anytime you're making a big decision in a school or a school district, you need to do a needs assessment. They need to ask their students specifically their opinion. Because I could tell you now, if we pull chocolate milk on, from the line at my school, yeah. huh? Yeah. It, yeah. 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 I mean, you, you would get the phone calls. I don't know. The for students me, would be devastated. For me, it's just kind of like, if, if it's not broken, don't fix it. It just seems like one of those things, like, isn't there something else? Like you said, are, are soda machines out of the building? Do they serve apple juice? You know, is there other other things that might have more sugar in them? And why are we going after this? I don't know. Are you ready for the uh, bright idea? I'm ready. Our guest in today's Bright Ideas segment is here to give us tips on how educators can help students understand and identify media bias. Jacqueline Whiting spent over 20 years teaching high school social studies, but now she's her school's library and media specialist. She's also the co-author of News Literacy, The Keys to Combating Fake News. Jackie, welcome to Class Dismissed. Thanks, Nick. Great to be here. Uh, I'm so excited to have you here because this is an issue that when I was running a newsroom, I would even hire people who would study journalism in college. So they've already been through high school. They've already been through college. And it still concerned me at times of their their grasp of what I would call media literacy or news literacy or, or media bias even and how to identify those things. So it sounds to me like you have been really focused on educating students on how to work through all of this, right? Yeah, definitely. It actually began as my Google Innovator project when I was accepted into the Google Innovator Academy. It was right after the uh, Shegg report had been released. The Stanford History Education Group did their examination of students in middle school, high school, and college uh, trying to assess their civic online reasoning is how Shegg referred to it. And what they found going into schools was that their instrument was not effective. And they actually had to go back to the university drawing board and redesign the tasks that they were asking students to do because they were so unprepared to to tackle those tasks. And they went back into schools, readministered the new assessment and came back out. And in a word said, the situation that we're in right now is pretty bleak. And bleak is the word that they chose. Um, and that was about three years ago. And that was really a call to action, uh, certainly to people in the library media world. And I think it's it's filtered out from there to people in, in all parts of, of education. The media literacy of faculty as, as, is as important as the media literacy of our students. And so in trying to tackle this problem with students, I found that I'm having kind of preemptive conversations with with colleagues and running workshops for other teachers so they feel a sense of preparedness and some comfort in in addressing this in their classrooms. Yeah, and, and that's a really good point and that's exactly why we're doing this episode cuz as you're saying, maybe some teachers out there, you know, they've 
I don't want to say been left behind, but you just things have changed a lot over the past 20 years or just really the invention of the Internet and and how news is delivered to us and where it's coming from and how it looks kind of gets a little blurry at times. And and what I'd like to do is just kind of go through and, and maybe identify some some tricks on, you know, things that teachers and students should be looking for when they're pulling sources from different news sources uh, across the Internet. Um, so sure. you can help me with that, right? Absolutely. So let's first kind of just go through and try to identify some things that are happening in the media that that people should look out for. And um, the first one I'm going to start with is native advertising. Can you explain to listeners what that is and what that looks like? Yeah, ab- absolutely. You know, native advertising by another name is sponsored content. And when I present students with an example of native advertising and they're not really sure what it is that they're looking at, and if I say to them, what if I call it sponsored content? Does that mean anything to you? And now the the sports fans say, oh yeah, sponsorship. Somebody's paying for it to be here. And that's immediately followed by a, whoa, I'm looking at a news site. You don't pay to put your story in front of people. And so that's when we start to unpack it and say, okay, so sponsored means somebody's paying for it to be here. Originally, I called it native advertising. So what is it that we're looking at? And eventually, students will come around to, well, I'm looking at an ad. Somebody's trying to sell me something, sell me a product, sell me an idea, sell me a way of life. And it doesn't look like an ad. It looks like news. And that is really the first kind of stop in their tracks Things aren't always what they appear to be. And I need to bring a much more critical eye to some of the things that I am taking for granted when I come across them. Yeah. And I'm going to give an example of one that's, you know, not necessarily news. And maybe you can throw an example out uh, to the listeners as well. But you could have um, a news station be willing to take money from, say, a restaurant and say, these are the top five burgers in the Southeast. And, Mm -hmm. and, maybe all five, maybe one of the five, but they could be paying to have that article written, or they may have even written it themselves and handed it over to the news agency. And essentially it is native advertising. I mean, is there anything that jumps out in your mind that also might look like that? Yeah, there's a, there's a great one I use with students. Um, I show them a, a screenshot from a media agency, a media website, And I usually do it when the students are getting ready to do a kind of a personal interest research project. And students will do a lot of things having to do with tech or, um, you know, girls in STEM and things like that. And the, the sponsored content is actually presented as a headline called the real reason women don't go into tech. And I show them that and someone will always say, oh my gosh, that's the perfect source for what I'm writing about until they click on it and see that this thing that's presenting itself as a news story actually isn't a news story at all. Um, But you have to be paying close attention to, to figure that out, right? Somebody's paying for access to you. It's really closely related to clickbait, which is something they love because you know, that's amusing and that's engaging and entertaining, but they're, you know, they're cousins. And I can say from experience, I've seen local um, news agencies five years ago, they were uncomfortable with the idea of, of taking money from somebody and writing something that looks like a news article. And they, they didn't even like the idea of having something at the very top or the bottom saying, this is, you know, 
native advertising or sponsored content or so forth. Mm -hmm. But as we've gone along over the past five years or so, that bar has been lowered as as these organizations, local news companies, uh, newspaper companies realize that they may need to find new ways to get money because people aren't watching TV anymore. People aren't getting in the newspaper anymore. They they're more willing to do this. I mean, would you agree? Oh, absolutely. There's definitely a revenue stream element to it. Um, the more these different kinds of publications are, are closing up shop or reducing their reducing their workforce because they they you know can't meet their their bottom line anymore. That's certainly one element of it. I think another element of it is is also kind of the race for the story and the space to fill in a 24/7 news cycle where news is streaming you know into our pockets onto our person wherever we go. There's there's not that much newsworthy stuff going on, right? right? And so if you can't find it, you can buy it. Do you think um, your students or, or any students, you know, are aware of how many times a day they're impacted by what, I, I don't know if you, you use the same term, but I call them influencers, people on Instagram or Facebook who are pushing some product or an idea? So it's interesting. I would say that by and large, many of my students on the surface feel immune to that. Um, I know better. I know what I'm looking at. I know when somebody's pushing something on me. And in a more vulnerable moment, when asked about kind of the things that they like and the things that they don't like about social media, eventually some students will come around to, to a really powerful admission, which is, I waste a lot of money because I'm on social media and I impulse buy things. Um, and then they start to, to realize that so much of, of what they say during the day and, and what they choose to share in their face-to-face conversations with people is all being derived from this, these, as you're saying, social media influencers. You know, I'm, I'm always proud of myself when I have an NPR driveway moment and I just can't turn off the car because mm-hmm. I have to keep listening to this story. And it's not a, it's not a, sh- a short leap to, to get to those social media influencers and how they kind of creep into our thought patterns and our speech patterns and our shopping patterns. And speaking of patterns, what I think we see a lot of are um, people create their own filter bubbles. Kind of explain that a little bit. Oh, definitely. Um, I always say to my students that you you have to know how the algorithms of search are influenced by what you click on. And I do an example with students where um, I tell them as as generically and and unbiased as possible about Alex Jones being removed from social media platforms. And I ask them to write a headline for a news story about Alex Jones being removed from different social media platforms. And so they have a little fun with it and they try to write some pretty scandalous headlines and some left-leaning and right-leaning headlines and things like that. And then I show them real headlines and ask them to kind of unpack a headline. If a headline says, Alex Jones finally removed from Twitter, I mean, you can hear in how I've said it that I emphasized the word finally. Mm-hmm. There's so much that's potent in that headline, implying that this should have happened a long time ago, which is really different than a headline that says, Twitter blacklists Alex Jones, where Alex Jones has now become the victim, the victim in the story. 
And I tried to show them the more you click on just one of these headlines, the more you're telling all those search algorithms what to send your way and what you're not so much interested in seeing. So much so that if I go to my my Google News feed on my phone, um, the when I launch it, the first thing I see are the stories that have been curated for me. And I have to make a conscious choice to flip into the headlines mode to see what other people are looking at as well. And so I said to to my students that, you know, it's really incumbent upon them to click on multiple versions of stories on the same topic, the same issue, the same event, so that they tell those search algorithms, you need to send me a cross-section of points of view, or I'm not an informed person. As you inform students and teachers about this, who do you think's more surprised that all this is happening? Oh, I think the teachers are... um, their teachers seem to be more surprised that there's something that you can do about it. Students take it for granted. I say filter bubble and they say, well, what's that? And I can be half a sentence into a definition and they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We know that. We know that. And I said, well, okay, knowing that is part of the solution to the problem what do you do about it? Students are much more resigned to do nothing about it. And I think adults are more interested in trying to figure out how to minimize the the influence of filter bubbles on what they know and on their points of view. As a a solution, do you ever recommend, um, say, if a student was researching something to actually research it in, I guess, what you would call like an incognito mode on Google Chrome um, to where you're not really being tracked and it doesn't really know who you are? Does that help? So I've I've recommended to students that they try incognito mode. Um, I've also recommended to students that they do their initial searching um, in their school's uh, library database if they're fortunate to have a, a school that has some robust databases where they can see multiple perspectives within the database without the the influence of the browser. Um, And then the other thing that I recommend, one of my absolute favorite news um, aggregators is AllSides. AllSides.com triangulates the stories that it presents. They have a very transparent tool for how they evaluate the biases of the the people that work for them, the people who sit on their board. And it's a really transparent tool for how they try to examine bias within a news source. So that has been a really valuable way for students to see right in front of their face when they look at the screen. There is so many different ways to see the story than the way that I might be inclined to think about it myself. Um, And I I find all sides is something where if you just make that kind of a a go-to place to to broaden your thinking, then you don't have to be as concerned about what your browser is doing to you because you're keeping the importance of that triangulation in the front of your brain. So even when your browser is playing with you, you, you are conscious about it and purposefully trying to do something about it. That's a really good resource. I have not heard of that. And, and I really appreciate you uh, sharing that one with us, which kind of leads me to my next question, which is how do you teach students to identify who owns each media conglomerate and how that might influence the story that you're reading? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good, good question. 
that is probably the point of how media has changed that students are least convinced is a problem. And then I show them that viral video that I'm sure, Nick, that you saw that uh, was circulating about a year and a half ago, a year ago, uh, with the Sinclair Media Group and the, the oh, must read. I'm very familiar with it. Yes, yes. I have a lot of friends who work for Sinclair, to be honest. Yeah. So yeah. so showing showing that to students and pausing it once the screen is full of all of these different local newscasters and just having the students observe what's the logo behind each of these people and having them say, well, that's NBC and that's Fox and that's CBS. And then say, and all of these people are saying the exact same thing. And if I had said to you, well, this person works for this network what do you think they might be saying about the issue of media transparency and the reliability of their network versus this person who works for a different network? And then they start to see, okay, if this is being passed down from on high and people are reading this under direction, how do I really know when someone is speaking to me authentically? Um, that, that piece really does help them understand the importance of, of ownership and understanding ownership, sponsorship, who's paying for something to be published, who's, if, if you're the publisher of something or the author of a particular article, on whose board do you sit? Who's signing your paycheck? Like, what is the, what is the money that's behind the information? Because it matters. Uh, I, I'm going to try to bring any listener up to speed on the Sinclair thing who maybe isn't familiar with that. And sure. I don't even, I don't even remember the topic that that was being pushed down from the top. And, and it may not even be relevant. The point was that a topic was being pushed down from the top. And I think they asked all it was either news directors or general managers to read this editorial piece on air mm -hmm. as if it was their own. And it turns out that you had all these affiliates, which I don't remember if it was 20, 30, 40, 50 or more, um, mm -hmm. reading the exact same editorial piece, which was pushed down from the, the higher ups. And, and right. I remember, um, I'll give a backstory, I won't use names, but I have a close friend who was an assistant news director at one of those Sinclair stations. And she was embarrassed. And mm -hmm. um, she was infuriated uh, that, that that happened. And she there was nothing she could do about it because she needs to feed her family and she is under a three year contract with them. And, right. and so that's what's happening. Like these, you would think that maybe like these journalists would step up and do something about it, but they have contracts and, and need to feed their family and there's nothing they can really do about it other than get in line and continue to read those messages. What say you about all that? Yeah. And the irony of that is that that particular must read that was compiled into that video that went viral was all about the the fidelity with which they report the news and in this era of fake news i'm the person you can trust we're the people you can trust mm. we report with with fidelity so you know the irony in that one yeah. was was really really thick and and these local level news broadcasters are really put as you said they're put in a really tough place they you know their their job their mortgage the the food on the table for their families versus this thing that they're being told to, to say. And I have no reason to doubt that any of those people believe what they say. They're, they've gone into journalism for a reason. Of course, they are trying to report with integrity. And yet the flip side is you're saying it because someone's 
telling you to say it and their motives for telling you to say it may be disingenuous. Mm-hmm. And and that's where it becomes really complicated. It, it really does. And so if a, a student is working on, let's say, a, a research paper and they're citing um, you know, news articles or whatever they find on the internet, I mean, should teachers be you know, making sure that they are at least, like you said, getting all sides uh, in that regard? And how do you do that? Yeah. And that's really challenging when you're working with students who are caught in this trap of bias confirmation. They have an opinion, they have a point of view, and they enter research with this notion that, well, I know what I'm going to say, I know what I'm going to argue, or I know what I'm going to prove. And so they enter the inquiry process, not really looking to understand an issue, but just looking to confirm that what they know is true. And then they're inclined to dismiss things that are contrary to to their preformed belief. And that, I think, is is a big challenge with with students being able to find the media that will say to them what they want to say. And I think that that has a a kind of a close relationship to how we live our online lives, that we live in a filter bubble or we live in an echo chamber where, you know, we say something and it gets liked and, and reposted. And we live in this world where we can fool ourselves into believing, well, people, People believe me. People agree with me. I must be right. If you disagree with me, there aren't a lot of you and therefore you're wrong. So these echo chambers and these filter bubbles have removed our ability to even understand how to disagree with someone, how to partially disagree with someone and find common ground in other areas. And to me, that's the challenge. It's not to take the student who's on this kind of confirmation bias crash course with the truth Mm -hmm. and say, no, you're wrong. You need to see it from this point of view. It's if you see it from the point of view, you see it from, why would somebody see it from a different point of view? What are the experiences that person has had that inclines them to their perspective on this issue? Can you find common ground between you and that person in your life experience, if not in your understanding of this issue? And when you can start to build that common ground, you can start to then say, now we can open the road for having a wider point of view on an, on an issue that's not black and white. There are no black and white issues. Everything is gray if you let yourself see it. Jackie, I'm going to ask you to help help all educators out there with a, with a tough question, and you may have a great answer. Or I don't I don't know how you, you get through this, but I'll try. You, you, we've got a a president who you know often um, refers to the fake news, and in times he's referring to the New York Times, Washington Post, mm-hmm. what many people would call institutions um, here uh, in the United States. Mm-hmm. So, how do you have that discussion with your students without? being political? You know, is there a way to have have that talk? So lots of educators are afraid of having that talk. And I understand why they're afraid of having that talk. I begin every conversation about media literacy by saying, while we are in the room together, we are not going to use the term fake news. In fact, I will feel successful as an educator if I can remove that term from your vocabulary. Because when that term is invoked, it tends to be invoked with the intention of shutting down dialogue. And 
to me, media is in the business of informing us so we can have productive dialogue. So I ask students to think about three things. Information is what's happening. Misinformation is when someone tries to convey to you what's happening and they make a mistake unintentionally. And you know the mistake was unintentional when they come back and they print a retraction or a clarification to correct the error. And then the third thing that I want to want them to think about is disinformation. And disinformation is when someone tries to convey incorrect information to you for their own personal gain. And you may not understand what the gain is, but they are invested in you not understanding information. And when we start to talk about information, misinformation and disinformation, now we start to have a quality conversation about how we understand the world. And we can start to talk differently about the choices that journalists are making when they choose to print or not print something, when they choose, when they end up uh, printing a retraction to a story, when they learn new information. I don't know if that helps people deal with our current political climate, I tend to say the climate is what the climate is. We have to learn how to exist in it productively. So I won't use that term because that term is not productive. And I think you answered that very eloquently. And that, that's a tough thing to discussion to have. And I think, you're, like you said, you started off, a lot of educators are afraid to have that conversation because they don't want to get the call from, you know, a parent or they don't want the parent to call their mm-hmm. boss and so forth. And I think it's something, you know, educators really need to figure out how to navigate. Absolutely. Um, So I think you and I might be biased on this, but how important is it for students to be learning this? I mean, like, is should it be like, you know, math, English, media literacy, you know, or like, where does it rank for you in terms of importance that we're educating students about this? I I, I think it's absolutely vital. And I think that math is information literacy. English is information literacy. Science is information literacy. I don't think there's a discipline teacher out there who can be working with students today, wrestling with real world problems, absent media literacy education. Um, We are educators working now in a world where students don't have to look to us for the content. The content is everywhere. Students are looking for, to us for the tools and the strategies and the practice and the guidance making meaning of the content. That is our role now. And I think that media literacy just has to absolutely infuse everything that that teachers are doing. Um, And teachers are already doing a lot. So my role as a library media specialist really is supporting classroom teachers who want to bring in a range of media and a range of points of view into the classroom and entertain the media and the points of view students are bringing into the classroom in a way that builds understanding and and fosters dialogue. Uh, Well, I think that you and and all library media specialists are a, a vital part of education today. And I'm, I'm so glad when I was in school, a librarian was totally different. You know, it was a different, it was, yes. you know, teaching you how to navigate, was it the Dewey Decimal System? And, and now it, this is, I don't know, I don't want to say more worthy, but it, it's just so crucial to where we are today and, and how to get through 
um, understanding, I guess, the real world, really. Absolutely. And it's a I think it's a travesty, the number of school districts across the country, even across the state of Connecticut, where I live, where library media positions are being eliminated from schools as unnecessary. And if anything, we're, we're more necessary than we've ever been. I agree 100%. Um, so, and I didn't really get to get a whole lot of information or share a whole lot of information with our listeners. So yeah, you are in Connecticut. Do you mind sharing the school that you're, you're working at? Not at all. I work for Wilton High School, Wilton Public Schools. And what's a good way for people if they want to keep up with what you do? I think you, you blog about some of this as well, right? I do. I blog about this, uh, jwbeyondthestacks.blogspot.com. And I tweet pretty regularly, rather frequently, at M-S-J-W-H-I-T-I-N-G, at Ms. J. Whiting. Yeah, you are a good tweeter. I've been uh, kind of keeping an eye on your Twitter feed. And, and educators in general are pretty great tweeters. I think it's a great community out there. So I know um, a lot of people will love to probably track you down on there. Awesome. Um, again, uh, Jackie Whiting, we appreciate you taking the time to, to kind of enlighten us. I feel like we could probably do a whole nother episode on this. There's so much more I could probably ask you, but I think it's a good start. Well, you um, know how to get in touch with me. I'll come back anytime. This is a wonderful and really important conversation. Thank you so much. Are you ready for our pop quiz? I am. Let's go. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Oh, media literacy. (laughs) All right. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Ooh. Can I be political? Sure. Yeah. Sex ed. Okay. And I guess, I guess it is being taught in some places and not others. In some places and not others. It needs to be comprehensively taught. And, and I'll add to that. Um, And also personal finance. What does every child deserve? Oh, a champion. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Implicit bias. What's the best gift to give an educator? Well, the cheesy answer is a Starbucks gift card, but the real answer is your trust. Which teacher changed your life? Linda Miller, my high school math teacher for three years, because when I first met her, I thought she was the worst teacher I would ever have in my life. And by the time I'd had her for the second time, I realized that nobody in the world cared about me more than my parents than Linda Miller did. And last question, pen or pencil? Sharpie. All right. Again, uh, Jackie Whiting, we appreciate you taking the time. And uh, yeah, definitely stay in touch with the show. We'd love to have you back on in the future. Wonderful. I loved it, Nick. Thank you. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismissed. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.